Hello and welcome again. It is such a pleasure to be with you. I'm Dr. Leela Lewis. I'm a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and I'm the medical director for Adventist World Radio. What a wonderful opportunity to be the host of the medical symposium. This is part three of a series of five where we've been comparing the 1918 H1N1 pandemic to the current COVID-19 situation. And we've been so surprised to find not only historically, but scientific evidence that some of the principles utilized during that 1918 pandemic actually have applicability for us today. Today's topic and title is nutrition, exercise, and racial disparity in COVID-19 death rates. I am looking forward to hearing what our presenters have to tell us. But before we do that, I wanna say a very special welcome to all of our visitors. If this is your first time viewing us, again, we are so glad that you have joined us. If you haven't had an opportunity of viewing the previous presentations, you can go to awr.org forward slash health and you can view the previous archived videos. On behalf of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and Adventist World Radio, we want to again say thank you for taking the time out of your evening schedule to join us. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a long-standing history of supporting holistic health. Of course, this is supported in the scientific community as well, physically, mentally, emotionally, and I dare say spiritually. And with that, I'm going to invite my good friend, Dr. Dwayne McKee, the president of Adventist World Radio, to give us our opening prayer. Thank you, Dr. McKee. Thank you, Dr. Leela. Shall we pray together? Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We invite you into this symposium. We invite you into, into each of our hearts, and we pray that you'll bless each of the presenters and, and bless each one as we listen, that we may understand and know more about life, about healing, about health, and how to have a relationship with you. Bless us now as only you can. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dr. McKee. You know, over the last three weeks, like I said, we've been looking at some very unusual principles. The first week, we looked at hydrothermal therapy. And again, we were surprised to see that this principle utilized in the pandemic of 1918 actually had amazing results, even from science, particularly today, looking at heat and moist heat in particular. We saw that it boosted the innate immune system. Well, last week we investigated two additional principles. We looked specifically at ultraviolet radiation and open space. And again, we were surprised to not only find that the virus itself for COVID-19 was denatured, but again, open space and ultraviolet radiation boost, or another word would be to improve the immune system. Well, I want to tell you about something very special. For those of you who would like to know more, we have a very special gift for you right now for the very first 100 viewers that shares the Facebook or Twitter link. Again, if you share the Facebook, the link right now on Facebook and Twitter, you will get a free copy of an amazing book. Now, this book is very interesting as we've been comparing the historical nature from the 1918 pandemic to the current COVID-19 situation, this was essentially the guidebook, if you will, for the 1918 H1N1 pandemic, the principles that we've been discussing. It was also utilized by John Harvey Kellogg. Many of the principles utilized in this book were again used by him. 
So we are offering again the first 100 viewers right now. Go and share the link on Twitter and Facebook and you will receive this amazing book called Ministry of Healing. In addition to that, a very special note in the beginning of the book will be written by the panelists and myself to you. Again, thank you for joining us. And this is again for our live viewers right now. Tonight's presentation, as I already mentioned, is when my opinion, the most important of all that we've presented thus far. Tonight, we're gonna to be looking at nutrition and moderate exercise and what effect they play on the immune system. We're gonna start by looking again at the history of where these principles came about. We're gonna start by introducing a very good friend of mine, Dr. Peter Landless. Dr. Landless is a cardiologist and he also serves as the director of health Seventh-day Adventist Church. Again, I want to welcome Dr. Peter Landless. We look forward to his presentation as he gives us the historical nature of these principles that we hold so dear. Thank you, Dr. Landless. <clears throat> thank you very much, Dr. Leela, and good evening. Uh, thank you for the privilege of participation. This has been an exciting series, looking at, as you mentioned, hydrothermal therapy, possible, possible effects in the immune system in response, great opportunities fostering research and practical applications. Then last week, the importance, as you mentioned, of fresh air, open spaces, trees, forests, the benefits of sunlight and, and the benefits of controlled ultraviolet light, all of that very important, not only because uh, these things can be very healthy to us, but they make us feel good. And it's always good to use something that makes you feel better. From my vantage point as Adventist Health Ministries overseer and nurturing health work around the world in education and health work, I'm blessed and excited to see how these different modalities we are discussing are applied in healthcare now and have been applied in health work ever since 1863. As you mentioned that amazing book, Ministry of Healing, those very principles that we've been talking about, that we've been emphasizing the last two weeks, tonight and next week, are all related to the importance of what we should be doing on a regular basis. In a time such as now with COVID-19, how do our hospitals and healthcare institutions respond? We'll hear more about that tonight. But as we discuss nutrition and exercise, the Seventh-day Adventist Church draws on a rich tradition of health practices and healthful living embraced by co-founders Ellen White and Joseph Bates um, many, many years ago. At that time, and early in the 1800s, uh, names like John Frank Newton, and even across the pond, the great poet Percy Shelley talked and wrote of the benefits of a vegetarian diet. And then in the background of uh, the closer time to 1863, people like Sylvester Graham, Russell Troll, William Alcott, names like Metcalf and Jackson, were all talking about various aspects of healthful living. But John Harvey Kellogg, influenced as strongly as he was by Ellen White, applied all these principles, as did our institutions later on, 
in a holistic way. And that's the beauty of the Ministry of Healing, looking at all these things, particularly as tonight. We look at nutrition, the importance of exercise, and there is robust evidence of the role of a good, balanced vegetarian diet in keeping us healthy, not only in prevention, but even during the treatment of conditions. We need just to look at diabetes, for example, heart disease. And as a cardiologist, I'm also very aware that clinicians are not always very well trained in nutrition. So as we look at this important component, we look at it with the historical value. People like John Harvey Kellogg, his brother William Kellogg, as I mentioned two weeks ago, was instrumental in refining the process of producing excellent peanut butter, but also producing a breakfast food which has become known around the world, the Kellogg's cornflakes. And of course now, <clears throat> not only do we have the tremendous value of evidence coming from Adventist Health Studies 1, 2, and many other literature surveys which have been done and studies showing the value of balanced vegetarian diets. We then also address and look at exercise, and it's important. Again, it makes us feel good if we do it, and of course it has tremendous benefits on the holistic well-being, body, mind, spirit, social, emotional. And in our immune response, there's also a benefit to the performance of exercise and can be measured in people's susceptibility to illnesses. And so we see that all these important principles were being addressed in sanitaria that were working around 1918. And so Tonight and in the previous evenings and next week, we'll be looking to see how this can be applied in our current pandemic. Of course, and this is a painful component of the conversation, realizing that sickness, suffering and death are all part of the pandemic. There's also lurking and really actually coming out front and center the importance of the need to address disparities and inequities in health applications and health care. These health topics have been given to be shared not with a few, but to all. We must be ready and committed to step up on this very important issue. So not only to get more knowledge, get more understanding, but to live a life which is meaningful to many. I'm excited as we look forward to what we're going to hear this evening, Dr. Leela. I am too. Thank you so much for that historical background, Dr. Landless. Along the lines of history and hearing how the Seventh-day Adventists have, for, the long, for a long time, since the 1860s, have supported holistic health, I'm very excited to hear from our next guest, Dr. Richard Hart. Dr. Hart is the Chief Executive Officer and President of Loma Linda University. He's also an internal medicine specialist, and he's going to discuss with us tonight specifically the way that the Seventh-day Adventist Healthcare Network has responded to the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you, Dr. Hart. 
Thank you, Leela. It's good to be with you again. I'm particularly pleased to see the book, The Ministry of Healing, uh, being distributed. That book actually was one of the foundation books of Loma Linda University more than 100 years ago. Uh, and came, it contains such powerful principles that are still valid today. Let me talk a little bit about coronavirus overall first. Uh, the Adventist Church at the present time owns and operates 175 hospitals around the world. About half of those are in this country. The other half are scattered in many different countries, primarily in developing countries and different places. As we've watched this coronavirus, we are obviously concerned, uh, not only what will happen in this country, but particularly on our under-resourced hospitals in many countries where they are more difficult finding the personal protective equipment uh, and all the various things that are needed. So we're doing our best to try to plan for that. We had a call last week among the leaders of our own U.S. hospitals, and all the hospitals are doing relatively well. We've not faced the challenge of inadequate personal protective equipment like some places have. We've been able to keep up to date with that, uh, although scrambling all the time. Usually can only keep about 10 to 20 days ahead of time. Here in California, we've been fortunate to not have had the surge that we expected. And we emptied out the hospital of elective procedures waiting for this surge, and it never came. Uh, we averaged around 20 to 30 COVID positive patients in our hospitals uh, during this time and gradually going down now. One of the things that's fascinating about this, and we'll learn more as, as time goes on, is why is that? Why did why was California protected? Was it only, only the social distancing, uh, the hand washing and so on that perhaps we did sooner than some other places, or was other things happening? Several recent studies have shown that the incidence of people with protective antibodies are much higher than we had originally thought. Uh, a study in Los Angeles and also one in the Bay Area here in California both show there may be five to 10 times as many people have had COVID and therefore are positive with the antibodies to protect them than we originally thought. When did that happen? Did they get it now recently? There was some question even whether perhaps last fall when the flu epidemic was going around, perhaps some of that was COVID and we didn't realize it at the time. Or what is going on? What's very clear is that people who are healthy, who are in good shape, tend to have what we call inapparent or subclinical infections. Uh, in other words, they may not even know they have the symptoms, uh, but carry on with life and so on. The challenge, of course, is that they may be spreading the virus to others, even though they are not symptomatic themselves. This is always a challenge with, uh, with various kinds of infections like this, that during the incubation period, you may be shedding the virus, even though you yourself are asymptomatic. So that's one of the fascinating things that we'll discover as we go on. Now that we're moving into serology testing, basically measuring the antibodies rather than trying to measure the RNA of the COVID itself, uh, we will find out more and more people that actually were protected by the disease since they've had an inapparent infection. The question now will be, of course, how many are there? Can we return to work? Are we protected? How long will that immunity last? These are many of the questions that we simply don't know the answer to until a bit more time goes by. Another fascinating thing we've discovered here at Loma Melinda and increasingly in other hospitals is that while we think of COVID as a severe ARDS, we call it, acute respiratory distress syndrome, in fact, there are other components of this disease besides just the impact on the lung tissue. And it appears that there's a clotting impact that's happening to the body as well. So we have started down the road actually of anticoagulating our seriously sick patients uh, and keeping the blood flowing 
so that the clots don't tend to plug up the lungs and perhaps impacting on the heart and the liver and other organs as well as we've discovered. So that also is needing to be explored more. It looks like there's some hope that there's new techniques that can be used uh, to try to prevent the severely ill patients uh, that uh, from developing these, uh, these kind of symptoms. As we go forward, we're gonna discover now what it is that protected many people. Uh, and I'm delighted this evening to have the uh, discussion around exercise and nutrition. Loma Linda has been involved with plant-based diets since its very beginning. In fact, our very first, first school at Loma Linda, even before the School of Nursing and before the School of Medicine was a school called for cooks and bakers. Uh, so our roots are deep into the nutrition uh, plans for the world. And we've basically done that through plant-based diets and promoted that through the years. Our original Adventist mortality study in the 1950s, Adventist Health Study 1 in the 1970s, and Adventist Health Study 2 now going on, all show the tremendous value of having a plant-based diet uh, because it gives you uh, a variety of protective values, both for cancer and for heart disease uh, that, are, that are lacking in many uh, primarily uh, meat-based diets. So I'm delighted to have this discussion focus on those particular issues this afternoon and the ability to maintain good health as both a protective factor against coronavirus, but also against many other future diseases that we may encounter uh, in this world. So thank you, it's a privilege to be part of it. Thank you so much, Dr. Hart. And as, as a alumni of Loma Linda University. It is such a pleasure to continue to partner with Loma Linda University and to be with my, my colleague and really my mentor, Dr. Hart. At this time, as Dr. Hart mentioned, we're going to be talking with Dr. Charles, Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel. Dr. Zeno is going to be discussing to us what we're going to look at tonight, what we're really saying as far as the immune system and what we're not saying. We want to talk a little further before we get into the full disclosure tonight. Doctors, please share with us. Yes, thank you, Leela. You know, uh, around the world and on the internet, people always seem to come down to one factor, talking about immune boosting. And uh, in the next few minutes, I'd like to unpack what that is like. There was one study looking at uh, the internet uh, this was about a year ago, looking at the internet and seeing what words were being used for immune boosting. And they found that in the first 200 hits, there's a distribution, a uh, very uh, nice spread of various themes that were being looked at. Diet, fruits, vegetables, antioxidants, prebiotics, etc. These were uh, very prominently uh, featured as issues that would boost the immunity. Similarly, they looked at the top 10 to see which things were supposed to boost the immunity the most. And what they found were things like diet and fruits. Um, they looked at lifestyle uh, was part of it. And then a smattering of things as uh, if the slide is up, you could see uh, what those things were. But then they looked at another part of the analysis and, and they looked to see where there was commercial bias, which things uh, had the most commercial slant to them. And uh, what they found was that the promotion of supplements, and in particular, the promotion of the herb echinacea, this was, these were big things on the, on the list. And of course, some vitamins and, and other things as well. But the commercial slant was great. Then they looked at the news bias, which things tend to be most 
or tended to be most newsworthy. And they found that vaccines and even soup, because of uh, chicken soup, uh, these were highly news biased. So depending on what kind of site it was, you would find different things all about this immune boosting. But, you know, when we say immune boosting, what are we actually saying? This is a schematic of the regulation of the intestinal immune system by dendritic cells. And as you can see, this is a very complex array of various things that are happening. And of course, this is a static picture and it doesn't have all of the details. But if, if you can see how complex this is already, you should be asking yourself the question, when we boost, what are we, what are we actually doing? This is looking at the immune system from the point of view of, uh, of surveillance for cancer and for the chemokines and uh, the cytokines that are involved in cancer surveillance by the immune system to get rid of cancerous cells. And you can see there are lots of different factors that are involved. So again, when we ask the question, when we are boosting the immune system, what are we doing? In this one, we see the immune system as a social network. This is a very uh, interesting way of looking at things. We have actors, we have roles, we have context, we have uh, communication layers, and uh, we have inter interlayer communication, all of these to say, this is what if we were to take the immune system and, and make it into a social network, that's what it would look like. Well, this is such a complex thing that we have to understand that the molecules and the cells and the organs uh, act together as a, as a network, much like a social network does. And therefore, to say that we're going to boost something, we need to understand what it is that we're saying. Now, as opposed to boosting, we could talk about weakening. And there are some things that we know that are weakening to the immune system. For instance, there's primary immunodeficiency disorders where people have hypofunction of the immune system from birth. Then there are secondary things that are acquired, things like HIV and burns and malnutrition and chemotherapy. These things can uh, cause immunodeficiency. And then we have dysfunction, aberrant responses, such as with allergies and with asthma. And then we have where the where the immune system actually is mistakenly attacking ourselves, such as in lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, irritable bowel, uh, sorry, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. These are all autoimmune diseases where the immune system is actually attacking us. It's attacking ourselves. Now, do we want to boost that? Well, the answer to that should be no. So the, the term immune boosting is probably not a very good term. Here are some ideas. First, the immune system, uh, th there's a myth going about that the greater activity of our immune system improves our health. This is patently not true because there's an issue of hyperactivity of the immune system. And when it's hyperactive, it causes problems. So having an optimally functioning immune system is much more desirable. The second myth is that mega doses of certain vitamins or minerals will improve our immune system. Well, this is just also not true. As of now, there's no evidence that taking extra amounts of any vitamin or mineral supplement will actually improve your immune system's function or protect you if you don't have a micronutrient deficiency. That is, we should avoid deficiencies, not necessary to over-supplement, okay? So having a healthy, well-balanced dietary plan that has no macro or micronutrient gaps is what is most desirable. The third myth is, is it possible to boost your immune system after all? 
Well, there are lifestyle factors that modulate the immune system, but there's no evidence that any lifestyle intervention can actually boost an already optimally functioning immune system to the point where you're better protected against infection or against disease. But there are some things that will affect our, our microbiome, our gut microbiome, and therefore will affect our immunity. And that's why when we look at diet, for instance, and uh, the diet may actually involve the use of uh, some of the micronutrients and micronutrients that affect the microbiome and the microbiome then can affect how the immune system will function. So we have immunomodulation that can occur. And if we affect the microbiome, we can affect the immune system. But here's the key. We should keep the immune response in check. This uh, editorial that was written in Science Signaling really encapsulates the whole idea. In exploring biological systems, we often think first of mechanisms that promote the activation of that system. But boosting, such as unchecked recruitment and infiltration of leukocytes into tissues and uh, in an unrestrained uh, or an unrestrained production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, this can lead to tissue damage and even cancer. So do we want to boost? The answer is no. What we want to do is to optimize. And the things that we'll be talking about will be how to optimize our immune system's function. Thank you, Lila. Thank you, Dr. Zeno. That was tremendous. Yes, we want to optimize our immune system. We definitely want to look at this a little further as we explore the issue of nutrition and moderate exercise. I'm going to invite my good friend, Dr. Neil Nedley. He's an internal medicine specialist. He's also a hospitalist, a amazing author. He's also the president of Weimar Institute, an institute that focuses on many of these principles that we've been discussing. Dr. Nedley also supports this book, Ministry of Healing, that again, you have the opportunity of having a free copy tonight. Again, just merely share the link with anyone. Again, the first 100 people will receive that book. Again, I want to introduce my good friend, Dr. Neil Nedley. We look forward to his presentation on optimizing our immune system using nutrition and moderate exercise. Thank you, Dr. Nedley. Well, thank you, Dr. Lewis. It's good to be with you. And indeed, this is a topic that does go back actually to the 1918 pandemic because it wasn't just the hydrotherapy at those sanitariums. It was also the diet and I'm sure other things as well that seem to produce the dramatic decrease in pneumonias and death rates. And of course, in regards to COVID-19, people are asking everywhere, what is evidence-based? And one of the things it would be good to remind at the outset is there's no data available as of yet regarding nutritional factors in relation to risk and severity of COVID-19. Uh, it takes time to develop uh, these uh, trials. And in fact, we might say that even what we're doing today, hardcore, is not evidence-based. For instance, the flattening of the curve does save the hospital system, but it prolongs the curve. And for instance, you know, is Sweden going to do better long-term in deaths? Or are others that lock down early going to do um, long-term? And Dr. Hart alluded to the fact that the reason why California is doing so well may not necessarily be related um, to the early lockdown. 
And so these are all questions that are not evidence-based. We're making decisions that are based on maybe logic and some reason and some evidence, but not really randomized, controlled, prospective trials. And so even our politicians are not really following hard science by their decisions at this point. Uh, But there is existing evidence on nutrition and infection and immunity that is very important to consider in other disease states and in other infectious states that could have and likely uh, will have an overlap with COVID-19. Oxidative stress is what I would like to uh, speak about since this has so much to do with our immune system. And it was discovered uh, many years ago in the research of human aging. Essentially what it is is an imbalance between oxidants and antioxidants when the organism has exposure to adverse stimuli. And when there are adverse stimuli, this can be oxidative stress and it can start wearing down our cells and it can actually produce uh, some inflammation and a lot of unwanted activity. Enhancing the immune system under stress is thus uh, related to helping the antioxidant portion of the cell and also extracellular as we will uh, discuss uh, later. So if you take a look at uh, your screen on the oxidative stress, if the cell does not have the ability to combat uh, the, the, the stress, be a viral infection or be a pollution or cigarette smoking or things of that nature, you can see how the cell starts to uh, wear down. It actually increases its permeability and it actually becomes uh, somewhat dehydrated uh, And uh, it can even break down and apoptosis can result where the cell actually uh, dies. Uh, There are many environmental sources of oxidative stress as well as potentially cellular sources. But that term in the middle of your screen, ROS, is the reactive oxygen species. Oxygen, of course, is good for us. But when there's oxidative stress, it can turn into... Um, actually free radicals. And there's a number of different free radicals that result, not just one, but uh, over 14 from these reactive oxygen species that produce tissue damage. As you can see on the bottom portion of the screen, mitochondrial damage, um, mucus hypersecretion, bronchial constriction, uh, damage to our genetic uh, material, Uh, and there can be even muscle dysfunction, impaired phagocytic function, and impaired uh, response to steroids, among a lot of other changes that can take place as a result of not having um, the the defense mechanism in place to be able to gobble up these reactive oxygen species. So uh, since the time oxidative stress was first um, discovered, it's now been implicated in virtually every known human disease. We know it's very much present in cancer with the DNA damage um, that occurs. It is very much present in diabetes and in inflammatory diseases, uh, from the autoimmune diseases to diseases that are not autoimmune. Immune dysfunction and infectious diseases are involved, as we're speaking about tonight, as well as even mental illness, depression, and anxiety are much more likely in the setting of oxidative stress And studies have shown that if we're low on antioxidants, we're much more likely to succumb 
to depression and anxiety, even cognitive decline and dementia, Parkinson's disease um, and aging are related to oxidative stress. And it does have a role, we know, in influenza and viral pathogenesis. This is not something that we're guessing about or taking educated guesses like we are with COVID. Antioxidants have been shown to be one of the most effective strategies of prophylaxis and treatment of influenza viral infections. And once the accumulation of the reactive oxygen species exceed the removal of the oxide, the balance between the oxidative system and antioxidant system will be broken. And this results in the aggravation of neutrophils, inflammatory infiltrates, the rising of protease secretions and accumulation of the oxidative intermediates, all which work together to cause tissue damage, inflammatory response and cell death. And emerging evidence has demonstrated that oxidative stress does play a very important role in a number of infectious viral diseases such as hepatitis B, hepatitis C, even herpes simplex and influenza. Now, there are a number of antioxidant vitamins that can potentially benefit us in this uh, battle. Yes, well-known are vitamins A, C, and E, the antioxidant uh, vitamins. And uh, often when we think of those vitamins, we actually think about going out and buying pills uh, with these things. And of course, there have been studies on the uh, pills and the supplements but in reality, a far better approach is to eat plant-based foods. For instance, one cup of kale has 50 milligrams of vitamin C and 13 units of vitamin E. But if we take a look at the total antioxidant potential of kale, it is far more impressive. It is actually equal to 800 milligrams of vitamin C and 1,100 units of vitamin E. And this is why it's far better to go out and buy kale uh, and actually uh, know how to uh, prepare it well than it is to actually go out and buy a lot of these vitamins. The Human Nutrition Laboratory in Baltimore, Maryland, not long ago, took a look at the common fruits and vegetables in the United States, and they actually rated them as far as their entire antioxidant potential. And these are foods that were being used in sanitariums across the land uh, that appeared to assist along with other things in helping this flu pandemic and the dramatic improved results in these sanitariums. The number 10 out of the top 10 vegetables is eggplant. Uh, number nine, corn. Number eight is onion. Number seven, red bell pepper, very rich in a number of different antioxidants. Beets, a lot of studies being done on beets and their great antioxidant potential. Uh, even better is broccoli. Broccoli, of course, has sulforaphane. Even the broccoli sprouts have been shown to be very beneficial in regards to um, oxidative stress. Brussels sprouts, even higher than broccoli. And then the greens of spinach and kale are in the very top of the list. But the very top highest antioxidant vegetable, uh, according to the Human Nutrition Laboratory, is actually garlic. And garlic can help our immune system by helping us with oxidative stress, and it may help us in other ways as well. 
Now, again, um, people wonder, what about the randomized controlled trials? There actually was a randomized controlled double-blinded trial using garlic in regards to would it help prevent uh, infections. And it was actually taking a look at uh, the common cold, including the coronavirus um, cold uh, before SARS-1 and SARS-2. Coronavirus was known as a cause of the common cold, as well as other viral causes, to see if garlic versus placebo would actually help out. Interestingly, those who were taking garlic instead of the placebo had 60% less colds per year. Now, the average individual will have you know, usually about five colds a year, two to five colds a year in the American, uh, typical American public. So 60% reduction is pretty uh, amazing, but 70% total of fewer days affected. That means that if you were taking garlic and you did get a cold, you are actually able to recover in 1.5 days compared with those taking placebo, who it took them five days to recover. So uh, again, uh, faster recovery is certainly worth it um, as well. And then there have been studies also in regards to fruits. But first, the Human Nutrition Laboratory data on the top antioxidant fruits. Number 10, grapefruit. Number nine, kiwi. In fact, if I were back up to number 10, uh, in the medical world, we need to know that grapefruit increases our absorption of most medications. This is why you'll see this on the interaction list, because a lot of medicines were only anticipating maybe 20% absorption, maybe 40% absorption, but grapefruit will actually help you absorb a lot more, maybe double the amount. Uh, kiwi is even more potent in regards to its antioxidant potential. Um, cherries are uh, also in the top eight, and we're going to be talking about particularly tart uh, cherries, uh, helping us in additional ways um, later on when we get to the practical section. Uh, red grapes with their bioflavonoids are uh, loaded with antioxidants. Oranges, um, one of the Southern California advantages and Florida advantages are the uh, fresh oranges that are available. But even more potent, and a lot of people are unaware of this, it's a humble fruit, but yet it's even a little more potent than oranges, and that is the humble plum, uh, the really the highest antioxidant common fruit that is not a berry uh, that's commonly used in the United States. And then the top four are all berries. Raspberries, number four. Strawberries, number three. Blackberries with their additional anthocyanins, number two and the number one antioxidant fruit uh, was found to be blueberries. And interestingly, there have been studies on blueberries. Uh, this is actually taking a, uh, again, at a controlled trial of blueberry supplementation and how it actually attenuates oxidative stress within monocytes. Uh, they used a blueberry smoothie, uh, 22.5 grams twice daily, versus a placebo smoothie and marked increase in the oxidative stress markers in those on the blueberries, uh, mostly from blood monocytes, which is part of our innate immune system. Less inflammation, less than half of the placebo. 
Another study showed a blueberry smoothie of 200 grams pre and post exercise helped with muscle recovery and we had less oxidative stress. Now we'll talk about exercise in the more practical section, but exercise actually is going to increase reactive oxygen species, particularly very vigorous exercise, and thus it can have a suppressing effect on the immune system if it's not so moderate in endurance, but the blueberry smoothie actually helped with less oxidative stress. Strawberries have also shown to be helpful in reducing pain and inflammation. One interesting study showed although the proton pump inhibitors can't seem to help prevent Barrett's going into esophageal cancer, strawberries can, and it actually improved the precancerous esophageal dysphagia. It also improves interleukin-6 production, a sign of improved inflammation with just five strawberries per day. And another very interesting study showed that it improved confirmed knee osteoarthritis. You had to eat quite a bit, uh, at least in this study. Less will probably work, but they were really trying to produce an effect. And it was actually better than medications with 1.5 pints of strawberries a day, uh, in improving uh, pain, improved inflammation, and their quality of life um, also significantly improved. And then elderberries, those were not tested by the Human Nutrition Laboratory, but we know that they also have anthocyanins and are high on the antioxidant list. Uh, they did a nice study, uh, also controlled, that when flu symptoms began in less than 24 hours, they were put on this elderberry syrup, just taking a tablespoon of it four times daily for three days. 93% of them improved within two days with influenza A, uh, but if they were on the placebo syrup, they did not improve until day six. At least 92% of them took until day six to improve. So again, you see a dramatic difference. And again, does will this do identical types of things with COVID-19? We don't know until we put it to the test, uh, but certainly it's probably not going to hurt. And when things can benefit you without hurting, um, that's something that's really worthwhile considering. Now, another advantage of a plant-based diet is it tends to be lower in fat. And high fat diets have been shown to alter microbial composition in the intestine by increasing the ratio of bacteroides versus firmicutes. And this shift has been associated with increased gut permeability and enhanced circulating LPS levels, which can induce systemic inflammation. High fat diet induced alterations in the gut microbiota have been linked to overexpansion of endotoxin producing bacteria because again, increasing gut permeability and promoting the translocation of even live gram negative bacteria through the intestinal mucosa. And this, of course, can play a role in regards to super infections or additional infections outside of the virus, which we know are playing a significant role in the severe cases of COVID-19. Even a high-fat meal challenge in healthy subjects increases circulating pro-inflammatory cytokines and neutrophil levels. One of the things we can do to help us with this, uh, mentioned earlier by Dr. Charles Marcel, is prebiotics. 
dietary fiber is a substrate for these intestinal microbes. And low dietary fiber intake leads to reduced levels of these short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids can actually be healthy for us. The association between low fiber intake and lower lung function has been described by the very um, large NHANES study. And an increased dietary fiber intake has been associated <clears throat> with a 40 to 50% decrease in respiratory-related deaths. And that's uh, pretty amazing. And it got uh, published in the American Thoracic uh, Society not long ago. Soluble fiber also helps us. Soluble fiber binds onto cholesterol, can lower our cholesterol, can help our glucose control, and it decreases airway inflammation, uh, sputum, and can improve lung function in those with asthma. And then uh, finally on this section, we could discuss a lot with nutrition and lifestyle, but uh, some of the major things that seem to be playing a role in a lot of interest is zinc. Zinc is an important cofactor for important enzymes involved in the proper functioning of the antioxidant defense system. And it's also been shown to reduce inflammation in part by suppressing copper. Copper is a pro-oxidant and we know excess copper can cause a lot of different issues. Uh, zinc um, actually induces the synthesis of metallothionines, which are proteins in reducing the hydroxyl radicals in these reactive oxygen species produced in stressful situations. And multiple studies have provided strong evidence for the role of zinc in the protection against oxidative stress in several diseases. Zinc has also been shown to be toxic to the viruses. And when it gets into the cell, it can stop replicase or the replication of viruses and in influenza, RSV, rhinovirus, and even the common cold and coronaviruses. And multiple meta-analysis pooled analysis of randomized controlled trials have shown that oral zinc uh, in supplements reduces the incidence rate of acute respiratory infections by 35% and can shorten the duration of flu-like symptoms by approximately two days and improve the rate of recovery. Not quite as impressive as the elderberry or garlic, but still impressive uh, nonetheless. Interestingly, these studies were done in even third world or middle world countries like India and South Africa and Peru, and the doses of zinc range from 20 to 92 milligrams, but it actually in this meta-analysis, the main driver was not the dose, it was just getting zinc, whether it's 20 milligrams or more. And of course, we can get zinc from food. Uh, Black-eyed peas, 2.2 milligrams, lupin beans, 2.3 uh, per cup, chickpeas 2.5, lentils 2.5. And then there are higher sources like tofu and adzuka beans. And notice Boston baked beans up there at the top at 5.8. And then there are nuts that also have it. And I, we will emphasize that in our practical component. Brazil nuts and almonds will have three milligrams as will the seeds chia and flaxseed and pecan, sunflower seeds, cashews, and pine nuts and pumpkin seeds, all about even at six milligrams per three ounces only. And the highest in zinc is actually hemp seeds. And so we can get this without actually going into supplements. And this could help us in a couple of different ways in regards to modulating our immune system, as well as helping the virus potentially not even to replicate if we're able to get that zinc uh, into the cells. So I look forward to uh, uh, wrapping this up in the practical section, but back to you, Dr. Lewis.
Thank you so much, Dr. Nedley. That was phenomenal. You know, just hearing about the effect of antioxidants and simple things we can do as far as changing our diet, adding things to our diet that are so healthy for us. You know, that leads me to another topic that we want to address. Sometimes it's difficult for certain people groups uh, to necessarily know, first of all, what nutrients and what, what food items are good for them. And second of all, how do they access those? Well, in the news this last week and actually the week before, we've seen something that has caused great consternation to many of us. And it seems to be the racial disparity of certain ethnic groups, particularly in the two cities, one, two of the cities hit hardest by COVID-19, that being New Orleans and New York. What we saw is minorities, particularly Hispanics and African-Americans, which make up less than 30% of the population, actually accounted for more than 70% of the mortality. So we wanna look at that a little closer. We wanna find out what is potentially aggravating the racial disparity? Clearly it's come to the forefront with COVID-19. We wanna look at that closer and I want to invite again, my colleague, Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel. Dr. Zeno is an internal medicine specialist. He's also an adjunct professor at Loma Linda University and very abreast with lifestyle principles, particularly nutrition and exercise. And how do they relate to this current issue of racial disparity? in COVID-19 death rates. Dr. Zeno. Uh, thank you, Leila. Well, first of all, we need to realize that uh, everyone who is affected is affected. Now, that, that might sound as if I'm just uh, playing with words, but to the person who is in the intensive care unit, their race is not the major issue. The thing is, they're fighting for their life. So the, the idea of looking at race, we have to look at the medical sociology of this. On April 15th, tax day, this was uh, an article that was, uh, that was published in the JAMA network, COVID-19 and African-Americans. Now, what was going on? They were looking at people all around the country for the data that they were able to collect from the CDC and from Chicago, in this particular case, African-Americans were hit hard by coronavirus, they said. 33% of those hospitalized are African-Americans. 13% of the U.S. population is African-American. 68% of the coronavirus deaths, however, uh, were in Chicago were African-Americans. So look at that. 13% of the population, 68% of the deaths. 50% more likely to have heart disease than white people, 40% more likely to die at an early age of any cause, 19% could not afford to see a doctor. Were these the things that were playing a part in what was going on? Well, the Wall Street Journal had shown before all of this that if we were to look at the overall death rate, death rate and look at the age distribution, we'd see that the older one was, the more likely they, are, they were to die of, uh, or to get the coronavirus and to die from the coronavirus. And if you look by condition, which is on the right side of the screen, looking at the cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, et cetera, you would see that they were overrepresented as well. Uh, people with these diseases died uh, more frequently than others. So one might say, is 
this what was going on with the minority population, especially the Blacks. Well, from uh, the Kaiser Foundation, they looked at this report looking at uh, selected health condition by race and ethnicity in 2018. And what you see, uh, the top level is where uh, whites are. On the left, this is uh, asthma in the middle, that they have diabetes, and the right, heart disease. And you can see the distribution there. And you can see that uh, certainly for asthma and for uh, diabetes, that except for the uh, Asian population and the uh, and the uh, uh, the Hawaiians, the Native Hawaiians, and the Pacific Islanders, uh, most of these were above the uh, the incidence and prevalence for whites. Then this came out. In Arizona, health disparities increase the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. Indigenous people make up 21% of Arizona's COVID-19 deaths, but only 5.3% of the state's population. So this is not just an issue with Blacks. It's, a, it's an issue of certain kinds of people. This was a very interesting uh, uh, picture in that article, uh, different uh, access to healthcare, and you'd see that uh, the red on the left has uh, almost direct access, then the yellow had a little circuitous uh, route to get to the access, and the blue on the right, uh, very difficult to access the healthcare. So different groups of people may have different ways of accessing healthcare, but was it just an issue of access? This is looking at uh, barriers to accessing, and uh, we can see here a distribution again that would that would tell us that uh, people of uh, of Hispanic, Asian, uh, etc., um, ethnicity uh, had a, a more difficult time in getting to see the doctor or delaying their healthcare or using the emergency room as their usual source of uh, of healthcare. The Kaiser Foundation also published this on April 7th. Communities of color are higher risk for health and economic challenges during COVID-19. And what they looked at was the population and the percentages of people who were below the poverty line by race and ethnicity. Whites were 10%, Asian 10%, all the others were above. So was it, was it just then an issue of finances, poverty? Well, let's go across the waters to England. England uh, started to collect, or the UK started to collect uh, data looking at, uh, at their populations. And what they found was that uh, if you look at whites, Asians, and blacks, that there was a disproportionate amount of deaths associated with COVID-19 in blacks and uh, just about equal in Asians and lower, if you were, in whites. So there were, for the small amount of people who were black, who were uh, attended to with COVID, a greater proportion of those were dying from the infection. So here are some facts. COVID-19 is an egalitarian disease that, does, that, that can affect anyone and everyone if it comes in contact and you're susceptible. It impacts some groups more than others because of existing inequalities. This is part of the issue. 
People of color and other minorities in low socioeconomic categories are more likely to be exposed to COVID-19 for a variety of reasons, including the kinds of jobs that they do and the kind of income they have and the kind of transportation that they'll need. And, and, and these things are part of, of the, the life and the fabric of the society. Groups of color may also be more likely than whites to report other healthcare uh, barriers to access. And people of color are more likely to live in locations and housing situations that put them at increased risk of infection from coronavirus and, of course, the, the pollution issues. In Chicago, more than 50% of the COVID cases and nearly 70% of the COVID deaths were involved in Black individuals, even though they make up only 30% of the population, as Leila pointed out at the beginning of the segment. Death was concentrated mostly in five neighborhoods in the city's south side, which is primarily an ethnic uh, minority uh, uh, portion of town. In Louisiana, 70.5% of deaths have occurred among black persons who represent only 32.2% of that state's population. In Michigan, 33% of COVID-19 cases and 40% of deaths have occurred among black individuals, but they represent only 14% of the population. And if we look in New York, what we see is that Blacks and Hispanics have accounted for 28 and 34% of deaths, respectively, while they represent in the population 22% and 29%, respectively. So the data are there. Whether in the US or the UK, regardless of the state that we look at, if they have collected the data, many of the same issues apply. The virus is not racist. People can be racist, systems can be racist, but the problems are bigger even than race. And let me point out uh, from this particular uh, model that was presented uh, for cancers by uh, Freeman and uh, Chu back in 2005. Social injustice, poverty, and culture, all of them working together influence what is going to happen with the health status and uh, the finding of disease, the accessibility of uh, treatment, uh, even which treatments will be provided and what will happen after recovery. Now in the right corner, I have adjusted this slide to include a few things, and that includes the isms. When we talk about social injustice, we're not talking just about race. We're talking about gender and religion and tribe and caste and ethnicity and ability. People with differing abilities are, are, seg are, are uh, discriminated against, geography, what part of the country, what part of the world you come from, your language. If you are in a majority language group, you may have one set of things applying to you. And if you are not, uh, you might be uh, a socially outcast. Social class, education, bloodline, age, all of these things can affect the social justice and also affect the culture and therefore also affect whether or not one is going to be poor. And these things affect then the chronic disease status and the disease resilience that the person can have. And therefore, these things, complex uh, network of factors, will then produce problems with prevention, early detection, diagnosis, incidence, treatment, and survival and mortality associated with any kind of disease. We need to remember that there are social determinants of disease. If you look on the top of this particular slide, 40% have to do with socioeconomic factors. 10% have to do with the physical environment, which means that for the most part, if someone cannot have access to changing this situation, 50% of what determines somebody's health may not be within their grasp to be able to change. 
But ah, I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on the 30%, the health behaviors that they can change. And if we were to focus on this, then we can have a fighting chance for people to be able to do better. So uh, another way to, to, uh, to label this talk, we can say it is how to stay alive. And here, first, I want to talk to the health professionals. We need to know that they are vulnerable populations. And because of our oaths that we have taken as healthcare providers, right, we have a duty to warn people because their lives may depend on how we warn and if we warn them about what it is. We need to get in touch with our patients. In our hospitals, we need to talk to patients and workers. If we see people who are vulnerable, but they're not practicing what they should be, we should be able to help them along with it. In our social circles, in our social media, in the parking lot, in the supermarket, we should identify ourselves as healthcare workers. By the way, that's a badge of honor. And we should say, sir, ma'am, please put on your protective barrier. Please wash your hands or whatever it is. And we should encourage people Honey is much more attractive than vinegar. And so we don't have to scream at them. We don't have to, to shout at them. We just need to help them to see that this is something that can save their life and save the lives of their families, friends, and the community. People of color and all vulnerable populations need to realize this, that your life is on the line in this particular case, but not just because of this. But we must be sober and be vigilant and not panic. We should do the basics as if our life depends on it, and in some cases, it actually does. And you should be the world's best hand washers, the world's most careful when in com coming in contact with people, the most diligent users of PPE. And yes, there, there are mask issues. Uh, there are reports of uh, black youth uh, being uh, harassed by, by security forces because they don't know whether this black person is going to rob the, the place. Or yeah, th These are social inequities and these things exist but it doesn't mean that you have to take your mask off, all right? Uh, be insistent that others wear PPE around you when they come to your house to do something uh, that they're wearing the protective barrier because this may affect everyone in that household. Yes, there are socioeconomic factors and social factors and physical factors. Uh, some of these things are modifiable, some are not modifiable. But even though we can change laws, we usually cannot change attitudes. Even though we can change behavior, we cannot change the heart. And of all of the behaviors and hearts to change, ours, it starts with us, with me. Behavior is paramount in this particular case and for any kind of infectious disease or pandemic. And, of course, one should be taking care of his or her own health. We should take some responsibility of taking care of our own health, regardless of our circumstances, even though there are things that we cannot change, the things that we can change, those are the things that we should do by God's grace. So we should stop the spread of germs. We've seen this before. Everybody has seen this before. We can help to stop the spread of COVID-19 by doing some simple things. What else? There are some special things that we have talked about in all of these, don't smoke. For instance, diet that's high in fruits and vegetables, adequate sleep, getting, uh, taking steps to avoid the infection, manage our stress, uh, exercise regularly, and take steps to avoid, uh, second time, take steps to avoid the infection, and of course, managing our weight. These are, these are things that we can do. Uh, 
We also know that smoking, smoking upregulates angiotensin II converting enzyme receptors, and this therefore can make smokers even more vulnerable. So if you if you don't smoke, don't start. And if you smoke, get some help and stop. Some physical things that we can do, sleep seven to eight hours a day. We can learn to do this, even though uh, we might want to stay up and burn the midnight oil and watch that uh, extra uh, Netflix or whatever movie. Get some sleep. Moderate exercise. We can go for it and do it an hour a day. Eat fruits and vegetables, seeds and nuts, as uh, Dr. Nedley was talking about. We can learn how to like them. We may not like them at first, but we can eat them. And over time, we will learn how to like them. Uh, this we're talking about not just our health, which is very important. We're talking about our life because we can die if we end up getting this and we're in a vulnerable population and then we end up having to go to the intensive care unit. This is, this is not good. Avoid nicotine and alcohol. And come on, we can get help to get uh, these under control. And for our chronic diseases, it's about time that we take seriously the diabetes, the hypertension, the coronary artery disease, et cetera, and do what needs to be done. These are usually reversible conditions if they are dealt with early enough, and they can be done with uh, lifestyle changes. And we should help and encourage others, and we should protect our homes. Therefore, we should be models at home. Our mental and emotional state, we should stay positive and be optimistic. We should cultivate an attitude of gratitude and manage stress healthily. We shouldn't panic. We shouldn't worry about all the political situations that might be going on because our lives do not depend on those. They depend on what we do. Our spiritual life is also important. We should consider the transcendent, find meaning. And yes, we should even pray because there is a God in the universe who loves us. Socially, we should stay connected. We should avoid loneliness and we should be a positive influence wherever we are. And it doesn't matter what stage or what part of life we're in. In Nebraska, they put out this particular uh, idea. Advocates, they uh, hope churches can help mitigate the COVID-19 racial disparities. Unfortunately, across the United States and in other plus parts of the world too, sometimes uh, the church-going day, Sunday morning, might be the most racially divided time in the week. I think it's high time that churchgoers and churches get on the ball and work in this direction so that everyone can enjoy the best of health and no one has to be in that special vulnerable group. But there's a story behind the myth that happened with Blacks early in the course of the COVID-19 epidemic. There were rumors that people with dark skin may be immune to COVID-19, and these were circulating in social media since late January, and people believed it. And it was spread among uh, the social media groups. It, <laughs> people actually were believing that because of black skin or dark skin, one did not have risk. And therefore, people who believe this did not take into account the fact that they were believing a lie. I tell you, what we think and what we believe can make a difference as to whether we're going to live or die. Because when we get incorrect information and we have uh, uh, an incorrect belief, we may act in such a way that we can put our lives and those of our families and our friends at risk. The immunity myth has also been widely circulated online in the African-American community, where it has featured 
it was featured in memes and in viral jokes. And people were actually laughing at this. I tell you, this is nothing to be laughed at. COVID-19 will kill you if it can. It's not the worst thing that has ever happened. But this virus is not racial. It is an equal opportunity killer. So the best idea is to stay alive. Do the things that we know, do the things that we can do, and leave the rest to God. Leila. Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel, that was phenomenal. Thank you so much for bringing out that those very, very important points. We want to stay alive by God's grace. And as Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, we believe all people should be treated the same. So we really appreciate your presentation. We are going to go now to the practical application of how do we practically apply many of the principles that Dr. Nedley, Dr. Zeno, and the rest of our speakers have presented specifically regarding nutrition and exercise. With that, I'm going to again invite Dr. Neil Nedley to come and present to us some very simple practical solutions. How do I take this information, this amazing information, and make it apply to me. Thank you, Dr. Nedley. Thank you, Dr. Lewis. I'd like to uh, refer to a uh, article that was published just a month ago in Life Sciences. You can see it uh, at the bottom of your um, screen if you're seeing the slides. COVID-19 melatonin as a potential adjuvant treatment. It turns out with all the antioxidants uh, we talked about, Melatonin is even more potent than those antioxidants. N-acetyltryptamine is an anti-inflammatory drug. It's a potent uh, antioxidant and it's an immune modulator. And studies have shown six milligrams daily will decrease the cytokine storm. And this is why it ended up getting published under the heading of COVID-19 decrease interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factors, C-reactive protein, and interleukin-1b, as well as the lipoperoxides uh, that come about from the um, oxidative stress. And it also helps to keep the integrity of the vascular endothelium. Melatonin is produced in greater amounts when we go to bed early and when we get up early, when we have regular bedtimes, it's also produced more when we are outdoors in sunlight, and we also produce serotonin as a response to that sun sunlight through the eyes. And then we're able to produce melatonin because first we have to make serotonin and then a melatonin. Eating foods high in calcium, B3 and B6, can help us produce more as well. But first we have to get tryptophan, which is the least abundant amino acid in the diet, into the brain. The blood-brain barrier is like a steel pipe. It doesn't let tryptophan or any large molecule or large neutral amino acid across. It has to have a carrier, and it's an insulin-mediated mechanism that brings it across. Uh, and uh, that's why we want to have carbs with the tryptophan. And then if we do get the tryptophan that's into the brain, that's how we're able to make this potent um, antioxidant that's actually 30 times more potent than the most potent antioxidant vitamin, which is vitamin E. But again, it requires darkness, sufficient calcium, magnesium, B6, and D to accomplish this. 
When I was in medical school, whole milk was thought to be a great source of tryptophan. And you can see it's not a bad source, 46 milligrams per 100 grams. But there are higher sources, black-eyed peas, walnuts, almonds, sesame seeds, gluten. Uh, we don't want to ignore the fact that whole wheat has glutamine and gluten if you're not sensitive to it, which 96% of the public are not, at least 96% is actually that that can help us with melatonin production. And glutamine is also a more calming uh, modulator. It's uh, actually important in making a very important um, antioxidant called glutathione. Uh, pumpkin seeds are even higher in tryptophan than gluten is, and tofu is the highest concentrated uh, sources. Uh, melatonin itself is present in food. And uh, you can see the foods that have it, barley, banana, tomatoes, ginger, uh, rice, uh, corn, uh, oats. But there are a couple of foods that have the highest amounts. Cranberries, just one ounce, will give the physiological effect of 0.3 milligrams. And I much more recommend foods than supplements as far as getting your melatonin because the studies on melatonin supplements show that they are unreliable uh, in general. A lot of it's broken down as well, and it may not have what it says uh, it has because of the lack of regulation. But cranberries do have it in fresh uh, uh, servings, and pistachios, just two nuts, have the highest known melatonin source, again, 0.3 milligrams. And then when we get to practical applications, we have to talk about physical exercise. Although it does cause more free radicals to be produced and very vigorous exercise can, can damage DNA and marathon runners have been shown to have significant DNA damage, we actually don't recommend running marathons as a way of avoiding any virus or COVID-19. Interestingly, though, if we do overexercise, a serving of watercress a day will decrease the DNA damage by about 70%. But immune function does go down in marathon-type exertion. Natural killer cells, neutrophils, macrophages, uh, which are part of the innate immune system, exhibit the greatest changes in response to marathon competition, both in terms of numbers and functions. And during this open window of immune dysfunction, which lasts between three and 72 hours after a marathon, uh, viruses and bacteria can gain a foothold and it increases the risk of subclinical as well as clinical infections. But endurance, more moderate exercise can be healthy. And one of the reasons goes back to the free radicals. Extracellular superoxide dismutase uh, is actually uh, produced uh, with um, uh, exercise, with endurance exercise. And it has a unique binding capacity to cell surface and extracellular matrix. It's induced by exercise uh, training and skeletal muscle um, is what is going to produce the most. And it can then be released from the skeletal muscle and circulated to peripheral tissues. And it confers protective advantages against oxidative stress in various disease conditions. This diagram shows the problem of uh, the free radical, the O2 negative uh, anion, uh, which actually can produce uh, some damage in pro-inflammation. You can see the leukocytes going there, the cytokines 
uh, going there. Uh, but exercise itself is going to produce endurance exercise uh, of particularly moderate degrees are going to end up circulating this extracellular uh, superoxide dismutase, and it can actually help the lungs. It can help the blood pressure. It can help the heart. And there's even evidence it can pre prevent acute respiratory distress syndrome, which kills 75,000 people per year in the United States. Excessive neutrophil activation accumulation leads to increase of those reactive oxygen species resulting in that acute lung injury. And therefore, neutrophil adhesion and subsequent activation by activating endothelium uh, is an essential early step in the inflammatory pathogenesis of acute lung injury and ARDS. And so exercise can help us. And that's why it's not just nutrition, it's a new start, uh, an acronym by WEMAR and what we train all of our WEMAR health guests uh, to learn about. But before we close this practical section, I would just like to quote from an article that was published just last week in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition entitled Nutrition Amid the COVID-19 Pandemic. And they mentioned as direct quote, a responsibility of individuals during the COVID-19 pandemic lies in making an effort to choose a healthy lifestyle. Eat diets high in fruits and vegetables, exercise during free time, maintain a lean, healthy weight, which we actually didn't get into, but there's abundance of evidence that our BMI, healthy BMIs for our immune system are actually between 18.5 and 22, not just the usual 20 to 25, which is considered normal, and avoid snacking as well. Time-restricted feeding where we don't eat in the evening can also be enhancing and modulating to our immune system. And they also mentioned eating foods high in A, C, E, B6, and zinc, such as citrus fruits, dark green leafy vegetables, and nuts. This is something that can be simple. It can be done. It really doesn't have risk. Actually, there was far more risk of actually shutting down states uh, overall with, again, not evidence-based approaches in doing this. Not that that shouldn't have been done. If I were the, were the governor, I probably would have done the same thing. But what we're talking about here in regards to New Start are practical things that don't have risks of huge economic failures and all sorts of needing to take out loans from banks. These are things that we can do as part of our everyday life that can give us a significant advantage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Nedley. Thank you for bringing that so practical. And the studies, breaking studies this month and even last month, we really appreciate that. With that, we're going to invite another good friend and guest here as a speaker, Dr. John Kelly. He's the president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, former president and founder. He's also a professor um, at lifestyle, his Lifestyle Medical Institute there in Oak Haven, and he teaches medical professionals lifestyle medicine. Dr. Kelly, tell us a little bit about some of these principles as far as nutrition and exercise and how you incorporate them there at your institute. And just to remind everybody, if you haven't yet received your, actually shared the link, we would encourage you to do so. Again, we hope everyone that will be able to be a part of this 
Ministry of Healing textbook. It's a wonderful, wonderful book to read. Dr. Kelly. Thank you. Sorry, I had my microphone on mute. Yes, it's my privilege to, to join the team tonight to present this important topic. I really appreciated the um, citation uh, there that Dr. Nettie shared uh, just talking about the importance of lifestyle modification in the time of fighting uh, and uh, getting over COVID-19. So um, I specialize, as you know, in the use of lifestyle, intensive lifestyle treatments uh, in residential program settings. Um, and really, literally around the globe, I've had the privilege of doing programs from Lithuania to the Marshall Islands to uh, Singapore, etc. And it's remarkable uh, what we see happen in a short period of time with the with the proper kind of intensive lifestyle changes. I also have done some outpatient work, and typically I use what's known as the Complete Health Improvement Program or CHIP program for the core curriculum. Now, what's exciting to me is that science now knows how the dramatic changes we see can occur so quickly. Uh, I'm now doing uh, 10-day immersion programs. I've done longer programs in the past and thought that it was impossible to get the kind of results we see so quickly. But we now know that lifestyle changes affect our gene switches. It's called epigenetics, and it is uh, the switches on our genes are actually changed in beneficial ways by healthy lifestyle changes, as we've been talking tonight. Uh, so even now at the cellular level, at the genetic level, we know science is learning how this uh, tremendous effect can, can happen and, and be so quick. For example, just to illustrate that, uh, epigenetic switching can actually has been shown to be able to change even the cell type. In the murine model in the mouse, they have actually done research showing that gene switches can turn one cell type, a fibroblast, a skin cell, into a functioning cardiomyocyte, into a heart cell. And, and I only share that to illustrate the power of gene switches. And, and lifestyle changes, lifestyle modifications, are being documented continually showing us how they are affecting gene switches in beneficial ways. Now, intensive lifestyle medicine treatment is, is, um, has been shown to have strong anti-inflammatory effects as described by my colleagues earlier tonight. We in our lifestyle immersion programs use a diet that focuses on unrefined plant foods to the highest extent possible. Um, we also use, uh, as I've been mentioned earlier, early time-restricted feeding, uh, meaning we eat two meals, breakfast and lunch, um, and maybe if, we, if anything, a light supper only. And this is a form of intermittent fasting, which uh, usually is defined as um, having at least 16 to 18 hours between meals. Um, we emphasize what we is often called the leaf stem flower, uh, parts of plants, which are high in nutrients and lower in calories. I want to second the point made earlier tonight that research shows that essential nutrients actually produce better effects, health effects, when taken as whole foods rather than as isolated uh, supplements or nutrients. Uh, this, I don't want to ignore the fact that when you have a deficiency, indeed, there's a need for supplementation. But what we're saying is, in general, it's healthier to get your nutrients 
in whole foods than to depend on pills. Another thing that we include is regular, consistent, moderate exercise. And this has been mentioned as well tonight in the science behind this. It's important that we use multiple short activity sessions each day uh, rather than trying to get it all in one uh, lump, especially for those who are not uh, consist or uh, have not consistently been uh, doing exercise. Um, you need to have multiple shorter sessions. Sleep is absolutely critical, and we have a bit of time around 9.30 as part of our intervention program. Uh, sleep has actually been shown to also affect epigenetic switches, or the, I should say the lack of, of sleep. We, have, uh, we recommend and use a consistent bedtime about two to three hours before midnight. Uh, seems to work best, and as uh, Dr. Nedley and others have told us, the melatonin and other effects that are heightened and, and beneficial when we have a consistent bedtime before midnight. And you know, it's especially important with our patients that I'm seeing today because it seems at least before the COVID-19 pandemic that there was, our world is full of over busyness. We're just, we're just too busy. And uh, it's in some ways, I think that um, this slowdown in pace associated with COVID-19 has some beneficial effects as well. We also encourage stress management, uh, particularly with um, trust in divine power, uh, understanding that, that the creator God loves us and is, is not a, a one to fear, but one to trust and to depend upon. And we see remarkable drops in um, high sensitivity CRP. This is a marker of, of cardiovascular inflammation. And, and in just 10 days, actually the lab, the lab, the blood draws are only seven days apart. And typically we see 20, a drop of 25 to 80% in this inflammatory marker. We also see many other uh, major risk factors improve in just 10 days, uh, including things like fasting, serum glucose, blood pressure, cholesterol, et cetera. So it's, uh, I just wanted to share uh, what we use in an intensive intervention that is uh, improving the prognosis of chronic disease. And it's so interesting to me that in the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, that the lifestyle changes are an important part of preventing your infection. And if you do get infected, of having better resistance to fight it off. So thank you for the chance to share with you tonight. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. Thank you for sharing with us your experience there at Oak Haven and your multiple years of experience practicing lifestyle medicine. We are very excited to hear one more speaker, no stranger to us, Dr. Roger Schwelt. He's gonna be presenting to us on further practical applications of exercise and proper nutrition. Dr. Roger Schwelt is a pulmonologist and intensivist. Just today, he was in the ICU taking care of COVID-19 patients, and we are looking forward to your presentation, Dr. Schwelt. Yeah, and Layla, you know, the patients that I was taking care of fit exactly what we've been hearing about uh, in the media. These are patients with cardiovascular diseases. These are patients who are obese, um, who, who have a history of diabetes, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and it's, it's been a real issue. And um, I wanna take you really where the heart of the fight is. If you wanna imagine I'm one of these soldiers in the trenches uh, seeing the enemy uh, face to face, and that enemy is, is coronavirus, and to really accent what we've talked about so far, 
I want to go way back uh, for those of you who are, went to medical school or nursing school uh, to go way back to uh, biochemistry and highlight exactly what it is, what we've talked about. So we have oxygen. And when you add an electron to oxygen, you get this species called uh, superoxide. And this is what neutrophils secrete. And if you remember back on our first uh, session, we talked about what we noticed in COVID-19 was an increase in neutrophils, but a decrease in lymphocytes. These neutrophils kill by this superoxide. The superoxide is toxic. It's meant to kill. Um, but like most things, we want to contain that. And in this situation, it's not being contained. And so what I want you to imagine now is a situation where somebody is going into a COVID-19 disease. And what's going to happen is, is there going to be some sort of a balance that the, that the virus is going to evaluate in this patient's body? Is this patient's body more on the oxidative stress side or less? Because what this infection is going to do is definitely tilt the body it's like a stress test. It's seeing how much more oxidative stress can this body take. And if it reaches a, a threshold, then the body is, is going to not recover. And I want to I make sure that people understand what it is that's going on when we talk about superoxide dismutase. This oxygen radical, uh, this superoxide, is neutralized in the body by this superoxide dismutase. It's the red enzyme that converts it back into oxygen and into hydrogen peroxide. And this is really important to understand because if you don't do this, you have hydroxy radicals, uh, superoxide radicals that can accumulate and cause a lot of damage and a lot of inflammation. Now, we already know, we've discussed that COVID-19 causes this to accumulate because of the neutrophils and the ARDS. But what you may not be aware of is not only are there ACE receptors in the bronchial, bronchial tissue, but there are also ACE receptors in the endothelium. Uh, this, this is not just a receptor. This is an enzyme. And so if somebody theoretically gets so bad that their virus starts to spill into the blood and you get a viremia, uh, what can happen at that point is the virus will attach to the ACE receptors on the endothelial wall and all all sorts of things can happen at that point. ACE2, which is an enzyme, is also the receptor for the virus. ACE2 is responsible for breaking down angiotensin 2, which is a potent vasoconstrictor. And when it doesn't do that, when it doesn't break that down, you get overconstriction, you get leakage of fluid. And another thing that's very important is that ACE2 converts angiotensin 2 into angiotensin 1-7. Angiotensin 1-7 is another signaling mechanism to improve on superoxide dismutase. And so you can see that this is, not only do we have a problem with COVID-19 in it itself, but we also get a knockout of that ACE2 vascular endothelium. And that puts a real load on the antioxidant system of the body, which you can see here. There's another place though, where you can get this anti, uh, where you can get extra oxide. And for this, we gotta go back to Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. So if you remember this, you remember that uh, electrons are being pushed into the, um, into the, the membrane and the in intermembrane space. And if there is a high carbohydrate diet or a high fat diet, you're gonna get a lot of acetyl-CoA entering into the Krebs cycle and a lot of electrons being pushed. And if there's no, no way to accept those electrons, those electrons are gonna be pushed onto oxygen. That's another source 
of these oxygen radicals potentially. And so there's a beautiful review article that was published uh, just in 2018 before all of this broke out with COVID-19, um, published by Hindawi in the Oxidative Medicine and Cellular Longevity Journal. And it's a beautiful review. It's very, very long. It's about 24, 25 pages, and it references over 330 different studies. And this is what they said uh, here. They said excessive high caloric intake from either a high carbohydrate or high fat diet will cause more substrates to enter into the mitochondrial respiration. Subsequently, the number of electrons donated to the electron transport chain may increase. Upon reaching a threshold voltage, extra electrons may back up at the complex three with further donations to molecular oxygen, which produces high levels of superoxide. This is not what you want to have. And so you can see here that you don't you want to be in a super stress situation and then have COVID-19 on top. You're not going to survive that situation. And here on the left, we see the obesity. On the, on the right, we see healthy. As we have more and more oxidative stress, we're going toward those higher BMIs. So high carbohydrate, fructose, glucose, high red meat, high protein, high fat, all moving in this direction. How do we move to the right, to the lower BMIs, whole grains, nuts, fruits, vegetables, fish? Uh, they talk about protein, bioactive peptides. Those also can cause issues too if you don't have enough vitamin E. So you have to be careful. And they talk about legumes, protein, amylose, starch, phytochemicals, etc. Let me, it was very interesting. This is, uh, this is, this is not um, uh, religious. This is, this is a secular uh, organization. Uh, and, and they came up with this conclusion after reviewing all of the data that was given to it. Again, 337 references, 25 pages in terms of cardiovascular disease. They say the available research strongly supports that a diet high in carbohydrates and animal proteins and excessive fat consumption produces ROS. What's ROS? Reactive oxygen species. And subsequently leads to oxidative stress. The best dietary advice for the prevention and management of obesity and other metabolic disorders includes replacing refined carbohydrates with whole grains, increasing fruits and vegetables, substituting total and saturated fat with MUFAs. Those are reduced saturated fats and consuming a moderate amount of calories with an ultimate goal of maintaining an ideal body weight. Overall, further studies are warranted to gain a better understanding. So the question comes up is, you know, is the cardiovascular what is really the bottom line in terms of prognosis? And it leads to another burning question, kind of what we talked about before with race, and that's gender. So real quickly, we're noticing based on the data coming out of New York that there's a lot more men that are coming down with the disease, about 60% versus 40%. And that that is not evening out when they go into the intensive care unit. We're seeing much more men than women. Now, what, what could be the potential reasons? And I give you three reasons here at the end. Um, number one, a lot of the immune status genes and functions are found on the X chromosome. And while in most cases, women will selectively disable one of those X chromosomes in each cell, there is still more in terms of immunity. And we know that based on autoimmune conditions that we see more in women, for instance, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. Number two, there's a more of a social thing. We know that men tend to seek treatment later. Women tend to, tend to see it earlier than men. And in this disease, the longer you wait, the harder it is to reverse some of this stuff. 
right? So you have to be aware of this and you have to be cognizant of that. That's a problem that we are seeing. And then uh, what we've just talked about. So BMIs, cardiovascular disease, things of this nature, these are things that typically affect men, less likely women, although women have to be careful after menopause because they tend to catch up to men in terms of that and other diseases. So Layla, there's a lot of practical things here that we've talked about. We've talked about exercise and how that improves extracellular superoxide dismutase. We've talked about um, diet. We've talked about BMI. All of these things really fit into the, into the practical. But what I am seeing on the front lines for those healthcare providers that are out there, what I am seeing, this is not your typical ARDS, simple, straight, done, one and done type of thing. We are seeing this virus affecting not only the lungs, we are seeing it affecting the cardiovascular, we are seeing it affecting the kidneys, even the neurological. And I think the common denominator in all of these things uh, are, is becoming more and more apparent, and that's oxidative stress. Thank you so much, Dr. Schwell. That was phenomenal. We really appreciate your information. And I just want to bring up, you know, as we've looked at nutrition and we've looked at exercise and we've looked at the other principles we've looked at over the last three weeks, it comes down to this beautiful picture of health is all encompassing. It's certainly not just one one-stop shop. We've fixed it. We've done it. No, clearly it's not. It's a holistic approach to health physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And each one of these principles definitely plays a role. And I dare say the science does seem to support the importance of these principles. With that, I look forward to hearing from Dr. Mark Finley. Dr. Finley is a world-renowned international speaker. He's also the special assistant to the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And Dr. Finley in particular has expertise in this book, Ministry of Healing, that we're offering to those, again, the first hundred that have shared our link. Again, Dr. Finley, we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Layla. You know, I was thinking about the fact, as our physicians were lecturing tonight, of the integrated wholeness of the human being, as Layla has mentioned in each of our physicians has alluded to human beings are physical, they're mental, they're emotional, spiritual beings. And Jesus made an interesting statement when he said, man or woman should not live by bread alone. As important as nutrition is, as important as exercise is, and those are incredibly important. My wife and I are plant-based vegetarians, and she fixes me ideal plant-based food every day. So we are exercisers. We're out exercising regularly, rain or shine. But beyond that, if a person is consumed with worry, fear, anxiety. It tends to break down the life forces. And in this book, Ministry of Healing, written in 1905, but whose principles are relevant today, there's a section called Mind Cure. And one of the sentences that really gripped me in this book, and if you don't have a copy, it's, it's really a marvelous treatise on health, on total health, physical, mental, spiritual. But here's a line from page 241 that says, grief, anxiety, discontent, remorse, guilt, distrust, all tend to break down the life forces and invite decay and death. In other words, 
if we're filled with anxiety, filled with worry, tension, or fear, as many people are during COVID-19, it tends to produce negative chemical byproducts that break down the entire life forces. So the question is, how do we deal with fear? What is fear? Fear is a strong emotion of a perceived threat that is apparent in my life. So that's what fear is. It's a strong emotion. How do you deal with that? This last Friday night, I sat on a panel discussion. And the panel discussion was focused on New York City. The program was broadcast to New York City. In New York, we have more uh, deaths from COVID-19 than any other city in America. There's about 20,000 deaths in New York City alone. More people have COVID-19 in New York City than any other place. We had on that panel with me a EMT, emergency medical technician, a man who drove ambulance that went out and transported COVID-19 patients to the hospital when they couldn't get there by other means. We had a nurse that worked in a COVID-19 ICU ward in one of the hot spots, one of the most uh, challenging places in all of New York hospitals. And we also had an emergency medicine physician. And one of the questions that was asked to by the moderator, the panel to that group was this, are you ever afraid? And each of them said, we do have this emotion of fear. Uh, we're, we're fearful that we may get the disease as we serve others. We're fearful that we might take that disease home to, to our families. And we talked about fear and we talked about how to handle fear. We talked about acknowledging your fear. We talked about acknowledging the fact that indeed you were in a very difficult situation, not denying that. But we pointed out something else from a biblical standpoint that helps anybody deal with or overcome their fear. In the ancient scriptures, written by the prophet Isaiah, a Jewish prophet, hundreds of years before Christ, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. There is a sense of God's presence that enables us to overcome those crippling fears. Fear is an emotion. We're going to have that emotion of fear when we perceive trauma. But there is that sense that fear can be paralyzing. Fear can be crippling. Fear can be immobilizing. And it does not need to cripple or paralyze or immobilize us. Because the scripture says, be not confused or dismayed. I am your God. Don't fear because I'm with you, knowing that in every experience of life, God is there, knowing that in every experience of life, he's going to strengthen us, knowing that in every experience of life, in the joys and sorrows of life, we are not alone. The same prophet in Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Here is the confidence that you and I can have. We're not skin covering bones. We're not some genetic accident. We're not some anomaly of nature that is just here. But there's purpose in life and that there's meaning in life. And the creator that has fashioned us cares for us. He's with us 
as we walk through the dark valleys. He's with us in the challenges and trials of life. He says, I will keep you in perfect peace as your mind is focused upon me. COVID-19 is real. Sickness, suffering, and death in a broken world is real. But our eyes need not be focused on the essence of the problems we face, but on the God that is bigger than our problems, greater than our challenges, and much larger than the difficulties we face. Will you pray with me just now? Father in heaven, I want to thank you for every healthcare worker that's on the front lines, selflessly serving, ministering in love and kindness. I want to thank you for the promise that you will be with us, that although we may have fear, that you'll enable us to overcome our fears because perfect love casts out fear. And we can thank, we're thankful that we need not be crippled by that fear, paralyzed by that fear. We're thankful that we can know that you'll strengthen us, that we are created by you, and we are your children. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Layla. Thank you so much, Dr. Finley. That was beautiful. Again, encompassing the whole person is what each and every one of us want to do, especially as we're facing this time of difficulty with COVID-19. Well, I have been very, very excited about our presentation this evening. And now we're going to go to our question and answer session. But before we do that, we do want to thank each and every one of you for sharing the post. Again, if you haven't shared it yet, please go ahead and do so. And again, we will get you that book, The First 100 People, Ministry of Healing. Amazing book. Let's go to our panel now for questions and answers. Dr. Nedley, wonderful. We're looking for Dr. Schwelt, perfect. And Dr. Zeno, wonderful. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, our very first question, vegan or vegetarian diet, fish and seafood? Dr. Natalie, how did you answer this question? Well, that's a good uh, question. And of course, um, we mentioned the inflammation of arachidonic acid. In fact, uh, we didn't go into those early French reports that were showing, um, at least anecdotal reports, that the NSAIDs, uh, which are trying to decrease inflammation, might have actually been increasing the COVID-19 symptoms. And uh, that, uh, that, those NSAIDs are trying to block the arachidonic acid pathway, which is the more pro-inflammatory fat. Uh, the omega-3 fatty acids um, are more anti-inflammatory. In fact, there is a trial that has started uh, in COVID-19 utilizing omega-3 fats as a way of trying to intervene in this inflammatory process. And of course, we don't know how that's going to come out. But arachidonic acid is present in meat, it's present in fish, it's present in eggs, it is not present in dairy, it's not present in any plant foods. So based on what we know about arachidonic acid, um, the foods that have it would be the ones uh, that would be best um, uh, avoided. Um, dairy uh, can have some good things, it does have calcium, uh, it can be supplemented with vitamin D, uh, but it also has saturated fat, unless it's skim milk, and saturated fat has been shown to be uh, suppressant as far as optimal immune system uh, function is concerned. And so uh, in the issue with the fish form of omega-3 
um, is the toxins that come with the fish. A hundred years ago, I think fish was a very great way of getting your omega-3. But now you can't find fish anywhere that don't have mercury. And mercury and, uh, and other toxins are present there. And so we're trying to get the benefits of these nutrients with the least risk possible. And so even going to the plants of the waters, which is where the fish get their omega-3 from, they don't make it themselves either. It's essential for them as well. Uh, can be a much lower risk uh, than getting it from even, quotes, um, a fish oil that's had the mercury removed, which is actually impossible to do. We can remove a fair amount of it, but it cannot be removed uh, completely, even with the best patented process. And so in general, uh, plant-based um, is, uh, is, I think, safer, safer and a healthier way to go. Thank you, Dr. Nedley. Here's another question from Sheila Davis. Is anyone collecting data to determine to what extent plant-based eaters are affected by COVID-19? Dr. Zeno. And I believe Dr. Zeno. Ah, yes, I don't believe that uh, anyone is collecting the data actively. I'm sorry about that. Um, We've had some difficulty in uh, trying to coalesce uh, a study group, but um, that's a wonderful idea. We have the idea of being able to do this, but it's not being collected right now, as far as I know. Wonderful. Uh, doctor, um, coming from Donovan Twindle. Hi, Doc. What can I do to control my hyperthyroidism on a plant-based diet? We'll start with Dr. Schwelt, and then we will go to Dr. Nedley. Well, um, I would say that uh, those two are probably not mutually exclusive. I think you can control your hyperthyroidism um, under the under the auspices of your physician, and uh, I don't I don't see how a plant based diet would interfere with that necessarily. I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't do it exclusively on a plant based diet because I think there's some uh, medications that you may have to be on. Thank you, Dr. Um, Schwelt. Dr. Uh, Nedley, do you have anything to add to that uh, discussion? Well, I would say uh, making sure that your thyroid's controlled with, of course, blood tests and, and with a physician. There is a, L thyroid is made out of L-tyrosine and then iodine as well. And so there are some plant-based foods that are high in L-tyrosine like watermelon. Uh, sometimes we'll see in subclinical hypothyroidism when we give them L-tyrosine that they'll actually normalize or very small amounts of iodine, like 150 micrograms a day. Uh, but uh, this is, again, something that you need to do in conjunction with your physician where it can be measured and you can see how effective um, you are with these measures. Thank you. Another question from Dr. Pasco, phase one, phase two. Uh, Dr. Schwelt, this is a question for you specifically. Do you feel that hydrothermal therapy is a part of the other principles sort of we've discussed? Some use, people use the acronym NEWSTART as um, they do there in Weimar. Is that outside of the NEWSTART principle? And can you utilize steam inhalation um, using the mouth and nostrils as points of entry, Dr. Schwell? So uh, I, th I assume that you're talking phase one is before infection, phase two is after infection. Um, Absolutely. I believe that I don't want to speak for uh, New Start, but um, one of those letters there, I believe, is, is water. And that's uh, the part of hydrotherapy. So I think it's perfectly in line uh, with New Start. I, I would be careful inhaling directly uh, hot 
Steam, although there may, there may be some good data on that. It's just um, you're, you're sometimes you've got to realize that that by definition is hotter than uh, than than boiling water, or it's about the same temperature as boiling water, depending on what altitude you're at. So you could burn yourself. So you have to be very very careful. But yeah, I think it's hydrotherapy in general is is in line with simple remedies that we've been uh, given, and we've probably forgotten a little bit about in the last hundred years. Thank you. This is from Ali Al-Sadi. How much time does changing lifestyle take to exert its clinical benefits, Dr. Zeno? It depends on where the person actually is. Someone who is already doing a lot, adding a little, will uh, may, may be all that they need to give almost immediate results. Uh, we see at lifestyle centers when we use uh, intensive uh, therapy, in a matter of days, we can see significant changes in, in health. For some other individuals, it may take uh, longer, but usually we're talking about days to weeks as opposed to months to years. Thank you. Another question from Linda. What about omega-3, 6, and 9? Should these be considered in our daily diet, Dr. Nedley? Yes, both omega-3 and omega-6 uh, are actually essential fatty acids. In other words, we can't make these ourselves. Uh, omega-9, uh, we actually um, can uh, from omega-3 or 6, but not um, omega-3 or 6. 6 is, tends to be very abundant in the diet, uh, particularly a more plant-based diet. Omega-3 is a little harder to get. And omega-6 can be pro-inflammatory. Omega-3 is anti-inflammatory. And so we like to see improved ratios of three over six, uh, if at all possible, when we're talking about not getting too much inflammation from an overabundant immune system. Very good. Another question came in. Uh, what if I can't afford organic vegetables or fruits? Am I still getting a benefit from non-organic sources? Dr. Schwelt. Um, you know, we've said it before. We'll say it again. The good is not the enemy of the perfect. So if you can't get organic, um, then certainly uh, get, get the fruit that's available to you. You know, in, in a lot of inner cities, um, it's, it's unfortunate, but the cheapest food that you can buy is the, is the highly processed food. And so it's not easy to make that switch. Um, it's certainly harder to make it from that to organic food, which is generally more expensive. So do the changes that you can afford to do and, uh, don't let the, uh, good be the enemy of the perfect. Excellent. Dr. Zeno, a question came in. What is the best form of exercise that you would recommend? Mixed exercise, that is a combination of aerobic and anaerobic exercise. But we must remember that exercise is, uh, is, is surrogate for, for work, okay? So actually doing productive physical work is, uh, is the ideal, but barring that, then uh, a combination of both resistance and aerobic exercise is the best. Thank you. Dr. Nedley, Joseph asked the question, what about fasting? How often would you recommend it for optimal results? Well, there's a lot of evidence accumulating now <clears throat> that fasting every day uh, is beneficial. What I mean by that is where we actually get the body into ketosis, uh, particularly in the evening time. So you eat a breakfast and you eat a lunch and then you fast daily by not eating suppers 
And that has actually been shown to reduce the risk of, of certain cancer recurrences. It's been shown to uh, help the immune system in, uh, in fighting several ways. And now there's a lot of um, evidence surfacing in regards to fasting, even with chemotherapy treatments uh, for cancer, where you might fast pre-chemo treatment and during the chemo treatment, and uh, maybe even a little bit afterwards as a way of augmenting the immune response uh, from that. There are trials uh, going on right now in regards to that. And the evidence is that even fasting for 24 hours once a week, uh, particularly if you're overweight, is a good way of weight reduction, and it's a good way of boosting the immune system. And uh, it's really a new field as far as um, really getting uh, very solid research. Uh, but um, uh, certainly there seems to be minimal, if no risk at all, to fasting daily the way I described uh, originally. Excellent. Now, what if I can't get healthy stuff? I have a hard time getting healthy foods. I don't have any stores nearby. I can't grow anything. How can I, how can you help me? I need answers to these questions, please. So I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Zeno and Dr. Schwelt to answer that question. Well, first, you must be able to get something. <laughs> and the basic idea is to do the best that you can. So having good information, acting on that information, and doing the best that you can is going to be better than doing nothing at all. Dr. Schwab. Yeah, it sounds as though you've got the fasting part down. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it's time to move um, if, if that's the case. But, you know, usually when you start looking around for things and you uh, get into the right network and you have the right friends, um, they're going to make things available to you that you never thought existed. And, um, and it'll be surprising. Excellent. Well, this is our last question for the evening, and then we're going to have a wrap up. But uh, we want to, to end on this question. So where can I get probiotics? Uh, we've heard a little bit about the effect of the ACE2 receptors, and we're curious to know what role does the probiotics potentially play and how can I get them? And we're going to go through each one of our panelists. Dr. Nedley. Well, probiotics are healthy bacteria that we can ingest orally. And we're finding out that if we have good prebiotics, probiotics most of the time are unnecessary. Uh, and so that's where the soluble fiber and insoluble fiber uh, can come in. Now, if you're lactose intolerant, uh, a lot of the healthy bacteria are not really uh, lactose um, dependent. Uh, there are, of course, um, you know, acidophilus and others um, um, that can be. Uh, but uh, there's a host of good probiotics available. There's not as much research to know exactly what combination is best for certain diseases. So you really have to trust your, your doctor or do some research um, to know about that. Uh, but in, in general, particularly post-antibiotics or in certain disease states, probiotics can have a, um, a very positive response on both the immune system and even mental health. Excellent, thank you. Um, Dr. Zeno. Yes, um, I, I think that uh, something that may not have been mentioned uh, greatly before is that in the uh, microbiome, we are actually, in the gut microbiome, we're actually uh, affecting 
the largest immune uh, organ of the body, right? And that is the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. And probiotics, depending on uh, their being alive and of the right type, uh, will affect those tissues and will help to modulate our immune system and therefore affect the response that our immune system would have when faced with a threat. Thank you, Dr. Zeno. Dr. Schwell. You know, I don't know if I could add more than what they said, but I, I would say I would say this in terms of understanding the importance of this, that it's, it's often overlooked. Um, I remember a, a case where uh, we would use this. It wasn't in our hospital, but I remember reading about a case where we would use uh, stool transplants for very severe cases of, of C. diff colitis, it was known as, and uh, this is in patients. And um, when this happened to an unfortunate young lady, she, uh, after getting the stool transplant, uh, her entire BMI, her, um, her weight, uh, despite having the same lifestyle, changed. And what is it about that, um, that organ, as, as uh, Dr. Marcel uh, has, has mentioned, that is, it's very intriguing to me that it would cause that great of a difference. And so I think it's, it's probably one of those frontiers that we haven't researched uh, enough and there's much more to learn in that field. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you to all of our panelists. It's been a tremendous evening. I personally have learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to what we have coming next. What we have next week, you are not going to want to miss out. And the topic you are going to be excited about is proper sleep and self-restraint and what role they have as we open up the global reopening of the world and here in the United States. We want to say a very special thank you to those of you who've been viewing us all over the world. We've had viewers from Borneo, from Pakistan, Brazil, Trinidad, Tobago, Egypt, Australia, Argentina, France, Bahamas, and of course here in the United States, over 20 plus states have participated. So we want to say a special thank you to each and every one of you for viewing. We also want to thank you for writing, sharing the site so that not only yourself, but others have access to the information that we've presented and also again, participating as far as the book, uh, Ministry of Healing. Again, for those of you who have participated, you have up to 12 hours of free category one CME credit through the University of Arizona. All you need to do again is go to the website awr.org forward slash health and register. Again, if you missed the other presentations, you're welcome to go to the archived videos and you can still be eligible for the CME credits. For those of you who are still interested, you can join our Facebook group and we are continuing to offer ideas collectively together as we research some of these other principles. Again, we want to thank each and every one of you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again next week, next Sunday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, God bless, and stay healthy, stay well, and stay whole. <laughs>